Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Steve Goch spoke to explore inconsistencies in the way we think of education and to examine the role of human learning as our interactions with nature, particularly through economic activity, create and recreate our environment. Thank you, everybody, so very much for turning out like this on a on a cold and windy January night. I'm, I'm, I'm really very humbled by the fact that so many of you are here. So, <clears throat> this is my title. The word is and the question mark are reasonably unambiguous. Uh, what the answer to the question is, therefore, depends on what you think education means and what you think natural or unnatural might mean. I want to start off with a few preliminary observations about education. Some of the people in the room are professors of education and some are not, um, so I hope the professors will be, will be patient. Uh, but I shall come back to education later on. A few preliminary observations first. Um, everybody has a view about education because most people have had some. But in fact, uh, public discourse about education often seems quite confused. Uh, we think it's about transmitting skills. That seems to be the dominant. Uh, that seems to be the dominant view of policymakers at the moment. Except when something bad's happened, when all of a sudden uh, it becomes about values. The kinds of values that are promoted are usually to do with citizenship and cooperation. The skills are usually designed for um, making the economy more competitive. Um, another view is that uh, that education is about transmitting innovation, uh, information, and in fact. There are some models of society, particularly some used by some economists, being very careful here, which, under the terms of which really that's all education could possibly do, pass on information. Then there's a view that our brains are somehow uh, hardwired to have certain potentialities and that those potentialities might be released through education or enabled through education. And there's another view that... Uh, the human mind is a tabula rasa, it's a blank slate until somebody comes along to write on it through education. Or perhaps education's about transmitting culture. Um, or perhaps it's about solving society's problems. Lots of people think so, whether what they're worried about is obesity or the environment or national character or something else. There are many people in the world who think that everything would be all right if at the end of the day everybody else could be educated to think just like they do. Um, there's a view of education as restoring the state of nature. This is, this is the view essentially that people are, are, are naturally good and so um, they've been corrupted by society in some way and what we need to do is get them back to their natural state of goodness. Or alternatively, and you'll sometimes hear the same view expressed within minutes by the same person, people are naturally bad and the whole point of education is to civilise them and bring them away from, uh, from, their, from their natural propensity to evil. And all of this gets confused even more because it's often not specified just in whose interests the education is supposed to be, whether it's the learner, the economy, the community, or something else. And um, the fact is that all these different possibilities don't always sit very well together. I'm going to argue in this lecture, actually, that all of them may have something to offer, and that we shouldn't abandon any of them completely, and that equally none of them is likely to be entirely right. But we'll get to that later on. A couple more observations about education. 
This is a model that Bill Scott and I published actually 10 years ago. Um, it still gets used a bit. I've adapted it a little bit for this talk. But what I'm trying to show here is just how complex the, the processes to, uh, associated with education actually are. There is often an assumption, particularly in policy discourse, that it's all very straightforward. You just teach people to do the right things and then they do them. But there really is a lot going on. Not least, and this is the reason why learning has an area outside the two triangles, not least that people don't actually necessarily learn what they're taught. And they almost never learn only what they're taught. So in the context of a lecture about nature... I would want to say that there are unquestionably many people who have learned a deep and abiding love for the great outdoors as a result of having outdoor education. There is another group of people, probably not much fewer in number, who have learned an abiding hatred of the great outdoors for exactly the same reason. Um, people, I'm afraid, don't necessarily learn what they're taught. Uh, then there's all sorts of other stuff going on which bears both on education and on how things turn out eventually. Everything from economic policy to personal relationships between key actors. Um, and I think it's useful to have this distinction between information communication and mediation and I'll explain that very briefly. Um, sometimes information is good enough educatively. For most people, that, that mushroom is poisonous, don't eat it is good enough. That doesn't, need, that doesn't need an interactive session where everybody breaks into groups. <laughs> Communication occurs where there is some need to help the learner interpret the information for their own context. That mushroom is edible. Here are ways of preparing it that you might be able to, that you might be able to use to make it palatable. And then mediation is altogether a bit more complicated. This is where, this is where the, um, the learner also brings knowledge to the, to the process. So we might imagine a, um, uh, uh, let's say, a, a jungle community who know perfectly well, know better than any Westerner ever could, what plants are edible and what plants are not edible, but hasn't got any um, knowledge of nutritional science, which would be something that would be useful for them, perhaps particularly in relation to, to pregnancy and so on. And then one final little slide about education before I move on. I will come back to it. Um, we can make a distinction between formal education, and here we see a typical primary classroom. I'm sure this tells us something about what's happening to standards, but I'm not entirely sure what it is. Um, I, I chose, I'm a bit ashamed of this. I, I chose this picture because it makes me think of Yogi Bear and picnic baskets. Um, but the Smiling Ranger, actually in, in North America, they, they call this environmental interpretation and they're very, very good at it. Um, so I, I, felt, uh, I felt slightly guilty about that. This is, this is education that incurs outside a formal setting but still has some structure and, and, and curriculum. And then we have informal education. And I, I may not be the only parent here who has wondered what my son is learning while playing Call of Duty 3. So, that's a little bit about education, so we've got our term straight to start with. What about nature? Well, here's some nature. One, one thing that's suggested about nature is that it's something that we should revere. Uh, this picture in the bottom right is Mount Kailash. 
in Tibet. Mount Kailash is sacred to 20% of the world's population. It has never been climbed, and that in itself is a remarkable achievement, although it's really down to luck rather than judgment. In, uh, in 1926, Hugh Rutledge and party were very determined to climb it, and extraordinarily, they were encouraged in this, this endeavour by a Sherpa whose name was Satan. <laughs> Fortunately, they ran out of time and were not able to make the attempt. In the late 20th century, the Chinese authorities gave permission for the mountain to be climbed, but by that time, the mountaineering community had moved on, and uh, Reinhold Messner, the, the famous mountaineer Reinhold Messner, who, uh, who led the campaign to, to uh, reject the invitation to climb the mountain on the part of all mountaineers, uh, said, if we conquer this mountain, then we conquer something in people's souls. So it's never been climbed. Um, there's, a, there's a sacred lake, Lake Manasarovar, which, it, which is adjoining the mountain, and I'm afraid that was, uh, that was violated by a Victorian gentleman on an ill-advised boating trip, in consequence of which the unfortunate local governor was beheaded. Um, but otherwise, that, that has had no, no, uh, no visitors to it either. So that's revering nature. The top picture is the North Pole, or somewhere near it. It all looks a bit like that, I think. And uh, here again, we have nature as, as a, with a very interesting educative trajectory. Um, Nansen and jo Johansen, Norwegian explorers, having left the ice-bound Fram and hauling sledges, got to 88 degrees 14 minutes north in 1895. Their story is an extraordinary one of survival in almost impossible conditions, which, which for many years was used as the basis of many a lesson in schools, not just in Norway. They survived an Arctic winter in Svalbard by huddling together in a, in a shallow um, trench which they'd hacked out of the frozen soil and covered themselves with polar bear skins. Subsequently... Nansen went on to become a national hero. He advised Scott. He told Scott to take dogs, advice which Scott sadly ignored. Um, and uh, Johansen went on to join Amundsen's successful expedition to the South Pole. Uh, Amundsen made a foolish start, left too early from their overwintering base. Johansen made the, the mistake of criticising him in public. And because in those days... Strong leadership was valued more than, more than any sort of justice or democracy. Um, uh, Johansson was refused a place on the successful trip to the South Pole. He went back to Norway, uh, a humiliated and disgraced man, and shot himself in 1913. Um, however, these days, morals have changed, and you're more likely to find Johansson as the, as the educative subject of... Uh, um, using nature as a, as a vehicle for education than you are Nansen. Not least since the allegation has, has been made, although not actually proved, that while Scott was on his fatal trip to the South Pole, Nansen was having an affair with his wife. Um, the other two pictures here are, are, quite, are quite similar um, in one respect and very different in all others. 
they're both they're both cast landscapes. The one on the the one on the right um, on the upper right is um, New Guinea. If you walk ten minutes behind the huts, you can see you'll come to a huge chasm. At the bottom of which, a thousand feet down, you can see a, a, a huge river flowing. That's where all the water is. This um, terrain in the bottom left is very, very similar. It's in Borneo, and those spikes of limestone are anything up to 100 feet tall and razor sharp. The water's all down there in the mountain. And yet, there's a crucial difference between the two, and I have to go forward and back here to show you this. This is the, um, this is the Wallace line. It's an imaginary line running through the Indonesian archipelago. The Borneo slide is up there in Borneo, just below, <coughs> directly below the E in Brunei. And the New Guinea slide, you can just see the end of Irian Jaya here, and the New Guinea slide is off the picture to the right. The creatures and the plants either side of that line, are completely different. And perhaps most significantly, human beings did not evolve to the right, to the east of that line. <coughs> so on the western side, there's plenty to eat, plenty of nutritious plants, plenty of monkeys in the trees. And on the other side, it's all quite different. Different animals, different plants, because geologically speaking the land comes from somewhere different in the, two, in the two cases. And that has some significance for what I'm going to say later on. But what happened uh, was that um, probably about 40,000 years ago, people crossed the gap between Bali and Lombok. And when they got there, they found themselves in a landscape that had not evolved human beings. And that played out differently for different people. And I'll talk about that a little bit uh, later on. So if, if this will work and we can go back... On the one hand, in the, in the bottom left, you have um, societies which are very comfortable living in harmony with nature, if we can use that phrase. In the upper right, we have traditional societies that struggle desperately to cope with nature because it is so hard and so unaccommodating. Okay, other ideas about nature. It's something we should, it's something we should study something we should predict, something that we can control, or indeed something that we should have dominion over. There are two problems with this, both of which have, have some relevance to our topic. One of them is scale. We can study, predict and control, but we have a problem when we look at large scales or long time scales, because predictions that are valid over short time scales and at small geographical scales can turn out to be false over longer time periods and at larger geographical scales and vice versa. The second problem is that although we are probably actually adapted to think of ourselves as being separate from nature, we aren't. We're in it. Society isn't something different from nature. Human beings are not something separate from nature. They're part of it. Which brings us to Darwin. Now if you're a social scientist you have to be very very careful talking about Charles Darwin. 
because, and there are good reasons for this, and uh, very understandable reasons. And I'm going to, I'm going to um, talk about some of them in a minute. But um, minimally, and Darwin actually doesn't use the word. I think Darwin uses the word evolution twice in Origin of Species. What he talks about is variation, inheritance, and selection. And he's talking about a process that has, at its heart, variety. This was Darwin's huge insight, that the crucial characteristic of an entity, such as a species, is its ability to generate variety. And out of that variety comes the possibility to adapt to different circumstances so that something is selected. I want to be absolutely clear that there is no suggestion of progress in any of this. Progress is an idea in a human mind. This is a process that just goes on, at least in the biological world. And increasingly there are those, and I don't want to, I don't want to make a judgment on this today, uh, who think perhaps in the social world as well, as Darwin thought it might. So, what do we know? Well, evolution, first of all, in thinking about this, evolution doesn't try to give us a, a, a true picture of the world. It, it's prepared us for it to, to develop a useful picture of the world, and this is just a sort of cheap and cheerful way. I apologise to the psychologists, really, for having this, having this slide up here. But your, your mind wants this to be a vase or, a, or two faces. It isn't either of those things, really. Um, and... Secondly, a lot of other stuff has got confused with Darwin. Now, Lamarck, actually, as you can see from the dates, Lamarck preceded Darwin and was wrong about most of the things that he said. But he's one of those people who made a huge, a huge difference to the world by saying things that were wrong. The first thing that he said was that he suggested that it was possible for human beings to, to inherit acquired characteristics. Well, the problem that he was trying to solve was how is it that societies change so much more quickly than species do? How can that be? Well, the answer must be, he thought, that people inherit acquired characteristics. So somebody, somebody, somebody learns something in the process of, um, of trying to perform a task, and then the skill that they have... Um, that they've acquired is passed on somehow. Remember, nobody knew anything about genes or DNA or anything like that at this time. Is passed on. And, of course, that's wrong. It's just not true. But what is true and what does make human beings very different from other creatures in nature is that they learn things and they educate their children and they educate each other. And it's this that enables knowledge to be retained across generations and uh, for this, this process of social change to at least appear to happen very much more quickly than it does elsewhere. The second thing that Lamarck proposed, and this really did take a long, long time to get out of everybody's system, if this has happened already, was that um, evolution, and he did use the word, was a process that you could observe through history that led to increasing complexity. Things naturally get more complex, he said. But they don't. There's nothing in natural selection that necessarily makes things more complex. And if it's the fittest that survives, then what the fittest means is whatever happens to be best adapted to whatever the environment happens to be. 
So if we all manage to bring about a nuclear wasteland and the only thing that's left is the cockroaches, then the cockroaches under those circumstances will be the fittest. There's no suggestion of progress there and there's no suggestion of increasing complexity. The third idea that's associated with Lamarck, um, and this is really odd because as far as I can make out, he never actually said this. But for some reason it's associated with his name, is that the idea that if we allow that there might be such a thing as social evolution, and even people who, who think that's an appalling notion regularly use the word evolve in all sorts of careless ways in what they say, that there might be, it might be possible for people to control it in some way. Volition in social evolution. And apparently he never said that but it's an idea that, that had a lot of historical force behind it. Now, the thing is, you see, that if you've got this idea that you inherit acquired characteristics, if you think that evolution always leads to more complexity, if you then associate complexity with quality or progress, and if you think that it is possible to control so social evolution, then it is but the shortest of steps to Spencer eugenics and all the rest of it and I'm, afo I'm afraid that's what's made Darwin almost unmentionable in large parts of the social science community but but it's not there in Darwin it's it's been done to him um, I'm afraid by by others okay so I just said that society was within nature, but you can only think using the tools that you've got, and the tool you've got is the language, and the language has concepts of nature and society. And I want to now talk about nature and society and how together they produce something called an economy. This is Marx. Marx was a contemporary of Darwin. In those days, big beards were cool as you can see. Um, Marx actually had a great deal in common with Darwin in his, in his thinking. Um, he had one really crucial difference, in my view, which is this. I said a little earlier that Darwin's key insight was that the crucial thing about a species or any kind of complex entity was its ability to generate variety. Marx was an essentialist. What that means is that for Marx, the proletarian, indi the individual working class man was simply a, an individual representation of the general characteristics of the proletariat. What he was, what he was concerned about was ideal types, general um, essential characteristics of the proletariat, the bourgeoisie. These were the things that he focused on. So it's all about essential characteristics and variation between particular individuals doesn't really matter and can be assumed out of the calculation. What you're looking for is a set of standard characteristics. For Darwin, that's not it at all. What you're looking for is not any sort of essential characteristics because that doesn't really matter. What matters is the ability to generate variety. And I think it's quite interesting, I can't do it now, but I think it's quite interesting on, to reflect on, on, on the, few, the course of history afterwards um, with that in mind. And I, I personally think there's no doubt that Darwin was right. But what Marx did say here, and, and this, this fits very well with Darwin, who, as I said, had a lot in common with, is this, 
that um, all production is the appropriation of nature. What human beings do is they produce things. They have to produce things to stay alive. So as soon as you've got a society, you've got an economy. Because people engage with nature, and that's what creates an economy. Um, so, if you like, the economy is born out of the engagement between nature and society. Here we've got a few examples of um, nature and society creating an environment, which is, if you like, the kind of non-identical twin of an economy, created out of a liaison between nature and society, through economic activity. The two pictures here, at this one and the, the desert, the, these are both Perth. They're just different bits of Perth in Australia. Um, there's nothing unnatural about Perth, and there's nothing particularly natural about this because it's a tourist site. On the left, you've got Harris, which is a crofting scene with the environment transformed in a particular way through history and particular types of agricultural activity. And in the bottom left, that's the Lake District, which many people associate with nature, but strictly speaking, is just as much an industrial landscape as, as the Perth skyscrapers at the top. It's just that the industry in question is tourism. Um, there's nothing... That, it's very difficult to see what's particularly natural about it compared to anything else. Now, Norgard, Richard Norgard's an economist at the University of California, and he has an interesting phrase that he uses to describe this process. He calls it co-evolution. So as humans modify the ecosystem, the ecosystem responds. So we have this, we have this constant, ongoing engagement between human beings and the non-human natural world, and out of that you get an economy and an environment. People do things and the environment responds. And it never responds in quite the way you think it's going to, so that gives cause for further human action, which in turn provokes further changes in the environment. Here are some more examples of human engagement with the environment. I love this one on the left, although it's a sad story. Um, when, the, uh, when the Grand Banks off Newfoundland were first discovered, the cod were so thick in the water, the fish were so thick in the water, you could almost walk on them. Uh, there are um, well-substantiated stories of cod up to 12 feet long being pulled out of the sea. Uh, you could catch them, as this, as this quote says, by dropping a basket in the water and pulling it up again. They were so thick in the sea. There's nothing left now. It's all gone. And I think a good question is, what could we have learnt over those years when we were telling ourselves, when people were telling themselves, oh, this will be all right? What, what, what could we have learned that would have made that outcome be a bit different? Perhaps part of the answer is on the right-hand side. This is a, uh, a quote from a very interesting book by a man called Hugh Brodie, who's an anthropologist, spent lots of time living with the Inuit. And he's, the, the Inuit, very interesting. They're hunter-gatherers. They are incredibly practical people. They have very highly developed practical skills that make use of, of what might be described as a scientific approach to knowledge. For example, they know how to catch a whale from a kayak. Not an easy thing to do. They, they know how to um, judge the timing of events like the spawning of the Arctic char and of various animal migrations. But, but they also have a very clear idea of what they don't know. 
Oh, they're also famous for being able to mend anything from a skidoo to a rifle with, with bits of things that they find lying around. So they're very practical people. They will also change a hunting trip. They will change the timing of a hunting trip on which the community's life depends because they've dreamt that the animals won't be there until the next day. They have an extraordinary mix of what you might call scientific knowledge and intuition, and they use both when they're confronted by uncertainty to try and cope, the very, cope with the very difficult environment that they live in. So what does, this leave us, uh, what does this leave us with thinking about people and what they might learn? Well, uh, this picture at the bottom here, it's an extraordinary picture. That's uh, Richard Owen, the uh, paleontologist and biologist, and that is a reassembled skeleton of a giant mower. The giant mower was one of 12, I think it's 12, uh, species of mower and the largest that inhabited New Zealand when the, when the Maori got there, which was between 800 and 1,000 years ago, not very long ago at all, the, uh, the Maori arrived in New Zealand. These creatures, being on the other side of the Wallace line, never seen a human being before, had absolutely no fear of them whatsoever. So you could kill one of these things by walking up to it and hitting it with a stick. And all the evidence from the archaeology is that um, so plentiful were these. The, the Maori had just discovered a land of apparently infinite um, bounty that uh, they didn't even eat much of them. They just ate the best bits and then went off and got another one uh, because there were so many of them. And now there are no more. Uh, the, the mower is extinct. All species are extinct and have been for quite a long time. They didn't last long. They didn't survive long. And so this is interesting because, because the Aborigines who arrived in Australia possibly 60,000 years ago and certainly 40,000 years ago had a completely different engagement with, with, with nature. Their environment that they found was harsh and difficult and very low on nutrients and all they could do was occupy a very tightly controlled, naturally controlled niche within a harsh environment. And they did that very successfully. Whereas in the case of the um, um, Maori who arrived in New Zealand, as I've said very much later, they followed their instinct and just killed everything because there was apparently no scarcity of anything and because it wasn't in their nature to think beyond the fact that there were still plenty of mower about if you ran after them a bit. Perhaps there weren't as many as there were in Grandad's day, they might have said, but there are still quite a few. Okay, so... Now, all this, all this engagement between society and nature, producing economy and environment, takes place in an ecosystem. And the ecosystem is what props the whole edifice up. The captions on this slide are not the wrong way around. They're the right way around. Um, the thing that these two, these two pictures have in common is that both of them are deadly. Apart from that, um, they've nothing in common at all. That's a pit viper, a lazy poisonous snake, and that's a tornado. What the slide proves is that engineers are cleverer than snakes, if anybody was in any doubt about that. 
The engineering resilience refers to a kind of resilience found in nature that focuses on average conditions and on stability. The snake in that picture can tolerate a very wide range of internal body temperatures. So pretty much any event other than something completely exceptional in its environment, it can cope with. It can cope with it being unusually cold. It can cope with it being unusually hot because it can cope with, with big changes in its body temperature. And consequently, creatures like this survive for very, very long periods of time without changing very much. Crocodiles are quite a good example as well. Um, the tornado has got four onboard computers. If two of them go down, it crashes. It can't glide. It isn't basically airworthy. What it does is very similar to what, um, to what a mammal does. It operates with a very, very small range of tolerable body, internal body temperature. And not only that, but the normal level is extremely close to the upper lethal limit that would cause the creature to die. And what it gets from that ability to spend ten times as much energy regulating its body temperature is that it can adapt to all kinds of external environments. It can cope with anything, just like the tornado can cope with flying at incredible speed ten feet off the ground in between obstacles. That's the difference between engineering resilience, which applies to the snake, and ecological resilience, which applies to mammals, and it also happens to apply to this tornado because engineers are very clever and they've worked this out as well. Now, the question is, as a human species, an evolved human species, in a society engaging with nature through economic activity and with an environment that co-evolves with that economic activity... Within an ecosystem, what should we be teaching? What should education be preparing us for? Should it be learners who have engineering resilience? Because lots of people think it should. They think that, uh, particularly in relation to the environment, they think that if we all learn to you know, pull our horns in and conserve things and, and you know, just live very modestly and, and be good, then everything will be all right. And that's an engineering resilience solution. The other alternative is that we need to be adaptive, what, what my friend and colleague John Foster calls, have the wit of feet running on stones, because we don't know actually what's going to happen. We don't know what the outturn's going to be, but it may very well be that playing this nice, safe, staying the middle, average kind of game isn't going to work for us. It certainly isn't our nature. So, a couple of examples. Oh yes, good. Got time for these. Now I, I always talk about the uh, the Greenland Norse, and I'm going to do it again. So I apologise to those people who've heard me talk about that before. But I thought we'd have a little go at Easter Island as well, and talk about what happens when ecological resilience gets pushed too far. So here are some slides of Easter Island, 66 square miles, the remotest speck of land on the entire planet, in the Pacific Ocean. Discovered, and I think this is the right word in this case, by a Dutchman called Jacob Joggeveen in 1722. He was astonished by what he found. Because the people who lived 
on this island, 1,300 kilometres from Pitcairn Island and 2,600 kilometres from, uh, from the west coast of South America, did not have a single seaworthy canoe. And he thought, how did they get here? They didn't evolve here. He wouldn't, of course, use the word evolve in 1772 anyway. How did they get here? Because they couldn't sail outside their own reef. But then he was even more astonished because he discovered these things. The statues of Easter Island. You can see in this picture how big some of them are, but that's not the biggest. Uh, the biggest is 70 feet tall and weighs 270 tonnes. In the quarry from which they came, there are nearly 400 abandoned ones in various states of preparation. There's nearly another 100 along the road that leads out of the quarry, just discarded. There are lots of these things, and they are difficult to move with a crane. If you go there with a modern crane, it's very difficult to do what these people did without any power source, any industrial-type power source, or any heavy lifting equipment. But they did it. And in doing it, they exterminated themselves. Because what happened was, you see, that they were, um, they were subject to all sorts of forces that they not only didn't know about, but couldn't possibly have known about. One of the problems that Easter Island has is that it's so remote that it doesn't get any soil replenishment. If you're further west... There is soil replenishment, both from an Asian dust cloud that blows across and also from a volcanic dust cloud that blows across from the Indonesian archipelago. Neither of those reaches Easter Island. So, to begin with, they cut down... This island used to be covered in big trees. They cut trees down to make seagoing canoes, which is what they'd obviously arrived in. That was fine. Then they started cutting trees down in order to move these stones and erect them. And eventually, they cut all the trees down. Now, Jared Diamond, whose work I'm following talking about this, well, I've heard him, I've heard him talk about this myself, and he, he asked this question. He says, well, what did, what did the Easter Islanders say when they cut down the last tree? What did they say? Did they say, don't worry, we will just substitute man-made capital for natural capital? Did they say, don't worry, our scientists will invent... Um, uh, an, an artificial tree. What did they say? Because the answer is that nobody ever did cut down the last tree. What happened was that over a period of years and years and generations, people just sort of noticed that there weren't as many trees of a suitable size as there had been. And then soil erosion started. Crops failed. The remaining trees were cut down. And at the end, all these, all these statues were thrown over. They've been re-erected for the, for, for, for the purposes of archaeology and tourism. They threw them over. They abandoned the quarry. They fell into clan warfare and eventually wholesale cannibalism. And uh, in, in a, a passage which gets very close to being too much information, in my opinion, uh, Jared Diamond records that in the language of Easter Island, the most telling insult that you can say to anybody is your mother's flesh sticks in my teeth. So that was what happened to them. Huge collapse in population, and when they were discovered, um, there were a few of them left, living an utterly miserable existence and not even able to sail out into deep enough water to catch a decent supply of fish. Now, the point there is, 
that this is what happens when ecological resilience is pushed over its edge. The system flips. It flips into a different system which is stable but at a much lower order and which will not necessarily support everything that the previous system supported. And for these Easter Islanders, and I want to come back to this point later on, this island was their whole world. There was nowhere else they could possibly get to. Nowhere else. Okay, Greenland Norse. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I think that I th this is one of my favourites. Um, <coughs> the Greenland Norse arrived in Greenland from Norway in, eight, in 964 AD. They, um, they arrived at a time when the climate was unusually warm and uh, over the next 500 years it just got colder. Of course, it was, this was natural global cooling. Of course, they didn't know anything about that. They couldn't know anything about that. They wouldn't even have the concepts to understand that. But that's what was happening. They brought with them to Greenland. There are, there are only two fjords in Greenland where their lifestyle could be supported. And their lifestyle depended on growing crops and using them as, uh, um, as food, stored food for animals through the winter. So they kept animals, they grew crops, and they had a very short growing season. During that growing season, they had to grow enough food to feed not only themselves, but also the animals through the winter. Because what happened was that the, um, as the growing season got shorter, the food supply got poorer and poorer, the animals died, and... Life got harder, but it didn't happen all at once. And what they would have noticed over those five or six hundred years was that, you know, Grandma was being annoying because she kept saying how, you know, the summer was longer when she was a girl. Well, how could that be true? But it was. Um, and uh, so as things got more difficult, the Greenland Norse, needed to decide what to do. They needed to decide, if you like, what they how they should learn to respond, what they should teach their children. And they decided that there were two things that they needed to do. One of them was um, that they needed to pray more. Because although they were extremely violent people, they were also very devout Christians. So they needed to pray more. And to pray more, they needed more religious icons. They needed more stained glass. They needed finer buildings. So at a time when they were running out of food and until the shipping lanes froze over or became too thick with icebergs, they were trading uh, resources back to Norway for religious icons and other things of that sort. The other thing that they decided was the problem was, that, um, was the Inuit. Because the Inuit were moving south because it was getting colder. And the, 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 the Greenland Norse decided that their problem was due to these incoming Inuit and that the best thing to do with them would be to kill them. So that's what they did. Um, eventually, somewhere in the 15th century, they seem to have run out of food and fuel at about the same time, and they starved and froze to death. So there we are. We've got these people engaged with their environment, with learning as the main method of progress from one generation to the next, and um, in an ecosystem that will support them and if it doesn't flip over to something else. Now, this is the cradle of civilization. Um, 3,000 years BC, there was a thriving city at Uruk, which is just here, people who are a long way off, 
and 3,000 years BC. The people who lived there knew very well, however, that civilization had been born at Eridu, which is the lowest of the red dots, and that that had happened at a date that we would call now um, somewhere between 4,000 and 4,500 BC. That's a very, very long time ago. It's, um, it's a couple of thousand years before there was any glimmer of the ancient Greeks and... Uh, uh, sorry, of the ancient Egyptians, I mean to say. And it's further before uh, Plato than Plato is before us by a considerable margin. The thing is, they all knew that this was where civilization was born. And they were right, because... Um, because in 1854, a man called John Taylor, who worked for the East India Company, found it. Most of it still hasn't been, uh, still hasn't been excavated. And at that time, something, something more than 4,000 years BC, and before the domestication of any animal, they were trading all the way up into Afghanistan for lapis lazuli. They invented these things. Cities. The centralised state, social hierarchy, the division of labour, organised religion, monument building, civil engineering, writing. They invented writing. You know, if a student doesn't know what to put, they usually write, today the world is changing faster than ever before, to get them going. Um, I really wonder about that. You think, here we are, probably something like 4,000 years B.C., here in Mesopotamia, they invented writing. Writing, I think, as something that would transform a human being's lived experience of their life in a society. You know, the invention of writing is right up there with, with ooh, the Xbox and uh, online shopping. I mean... <laughs> the point I want to make here is that we live our lives in, in, in a present that is defined by the, by the scope of years that, that we have as human beings. And everything seems new and everything seems fast changing. If you step back and look at it at a time scale like this, and in evolutionary terms, we're talking nothing here. We're talking six, seven thousand years. Absolute maximum for, for anything I've mentioned is 60,000 years. In evolutionary terms, it, to borrow a phrase from Arthur Kessler, it's a shrug of eternity. It's nothing at all. But um, over that time span, if you look at it, what we do is we, we repeat history. We repeat history with different technologies and different explanations, different stories. But we just go through the same thing all over again. In 3000, roughly, BC, there was some huge event which took place here which completely transformed the social structure of the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian Empire. Before that, it was all very democratic and there was lots of trade and lots of interaction across the whole area. After that, they lived in city-states and the big trade routes that had been there for so long were all closed. The Sumerians, which is the later name for these people, knew what that event was. They had a name for it. They called it the Flood. In 2003, there was another war right here. Baghdad is just near where it says Tigris River there. The leaders of the two sides both publicly declared that the reason they were going to war 
was, beca was because they had had a personal conversation with God and God had told them to fight this war. That was what Saddam Hussein said and that was what George W. Bush said. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So what are we to make of all this? Well, some of my colleagues will be happy to see a picture of an educationalist on this slide at last, but the quote is from Richard Rorty. The top picture is the philosopher Richard Rorty, dead now, and the lower picture is John Dewey, um, described by Rorty as one of the greatest minds of the 20th century and uh, a, 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 a major figure in, in educational thought. And um, the bit of this, a long quote, but the bit I want to draw your attention to is the bit that says it doesn't matter whether the tool is a hammer or a gun or a belief or a statement, tool using is part of the interaction of the organism with its environment. This is a Darwinian view, it's an explicitly Darwinian view, it's a very influential view within the intellectual traditions that are, that are known as pragmatism and institutionalism. And what it says is, we're in it, we're not standing apart from nature observing it as though from a a godlike cloud, we're in it. And we're engaging with it all the time, whether it's with physical tools or with words or with concepts. All of this is how we deal with the environment. And so Rorty says it's impossible for a human being to be out of touch with his environment or her environment. But, you see, that still begs a question about the, uh, about the Greenland Norse and the Easter Islanders. Weren't they out of touch with their environment? They had lots of tools... They had physical tools for raising statues and the statues themselves and the stained glass and the prayers and the swords for cutting open the Inuit. All these things were, um, were tools that they used, but they still seem to have been out of touch with their environment because it killed them in the end. And that seems like a reasonable working definition of, of being out of touch. Well, there is a bright side here, so we'll look at the bright side first. Um, what Rorty says we should be doing, what Rorty says all we can do in these circumstances is keep the conversation of humanity going. He says that's the purpose of education. Dewey says something that's really, really the same, I think, if you think about it, which is that the purpose of education is education. There is no other purpose. Education is what people are. It's what people do. It's what's make, what, what makes them distinctive. And Richard Norgard, who I mentioned earlier, talks about managing co-evolution co for human benefit. I think all of this comes to the same thing in the end. But here's a, here's a picture that uh, you could take from not very far from where I live. That's Bradford-on-Avon. It's a very good example of a co-evolved co environment. You've got the, you can just see the line of the Kennet Navon Canal at the top. You've got the tithe barn in the middle of the picture, the rivers down at the bottom and just up from the picture... A railway crosses the river on its way to Bath. In the bottom right-hand corner is something called Holy Well. Um, it's near Biddeston, not very far from Chippenham. And I thought I had dreamt this place because I thought I'd been there when I was a little boy. But it seemed so extraordinary that I just grew up thinking that it couldn't be true that it must just be something that I'd dreamt as a kid. And then I got talking to Katie Jordan in the library, and she said, no, it's a real place. Go and have a look. So with my family, the kids were smaller then, 
we set off to have a look. It's not a very prepossessing field. It's not a very attractive site. It's got pylons going through it now. It's a farmer's field. But in the middle of the field, there's a spring. And in the spring, I, when I persuaded my kids to take their shoes and socks off and get in and fossick about a bit, you can find perfect little stars. And I remember this as being a magical moment when I was a kid and I showed it to my kids who were saying, oh, you know, what's dad brought us here for? And then when they got in there, they thought, oh, I've got one. And, and, and away they went. And I thought to myself, um, I thought to myself, uh, you know, maybe, maybe in Saxon times, maybe even earlier than that, there were, there were fathers standing here with their sons or their daughters mm. doing exactly what I'm doing now and conveying something that does no damage to our desire to be scientifically accurate. Um, that there is, there, is, there is magic in the world that doesn't have to involve magic castles in Scotland, wands and, and um, what are those things called? Uh, dementors, you know? It's, it's, it's a really magical little place. And it hasn't done their objectivity any harm. They're both studying engineering. <laughs> There's a picture of the star in the top, of a star in the top corner there. So... Let's come back to Lamarck. Lamarck suggested that perhaps we could have some control over the course of, of events and of our... Um, if, 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 if we can talk about, very cautiously, in terms of um, inheritance and selection, variation, if we can talk about some kind of so social evolution, can we exercise any control over it? Well, there's a... There's a, there's, a, there's a theory now that suggests that we might be able to, and it's illustrated by these Russian dolls. Now, the, if, I, if I use the expression layered ontologies, I do realise that's not very catchy uh, compared with some other two-word phrases like, I don't know, big brother or special offer or, or something like that. But um, the idea is that we can think of reality all the way from the molecular to the social levels as a set of layers. So there is an atomic or molecular level. It doesn't really matter how you decide to divide it up. And that has certain laws. And these laws cannot be changed. However, when those, when those um, uh, molecules come together to form a cell in a, in a living creature... The cell has emergent properties. It has properties that are not reducible to the properties of the molecules. It can't contradict them, can't contradict those laws, but it, but it, it, but it can have properties which the component bits don't have. And we might then argue that a human person made up of cells nevertheless has emergent properties that, are, that, that cannot be reduced to the cell. And this gets us away from this worry that in the end, and it, I think it would be a worry, that everything reduces to physics um, or biology. <laughs> much, as I, much as I love physics, I, 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 don't, I don't want to believe that human life is completely predictable from first physics the first principles of physics, because I can't see much point in being an educator if that's true, to be honest. Um, and then perhaps, and this is a big perhaps, um, we can do the same at the social level, which means that institutions might have emergent properties and might be controllable in such a way not to change the laws governing cells or individuals, but to work through them. 
so as to transform things in a sort of downward direction. And if that were the case, then that would be um, uh, a great opening for education, because education, after all, is an institution. And I should have mentioned the name Geoffrey Hodgson there, who is the main, the main protagonist of, of that, that, that approach in the institutionalist tradition. Now, this is the other long quote, and I, 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 if I were, um, if I were uh, told that I could only have one lesson that everybody needed to learn, one, one quote that everybody should read, I think this would be it. This is Isaiah Berlin, and I'm going to read the whole thing, if you don't mind. Isaiah Berlin said, One belief more than any other is responsible for the slaughter of individuals on the altars of the great historical ideas. Justice, or progress, or the happiness of future generations, or the sacred mission, or the emancipation of a nation, or race, or class, or even liberty itself, which demands the sacrifice of individuals for the freedom of society. This is the belief, the belief that is responsible for all this slaughter. This is the belief that somewhere in the past or in the future, in divine revelation or in the mind of an individual thinker, in the pronouncements of history or science or in the simple heart of an uncorrupted good man, there is a final solution. Berlin spoke these words in a lecture in 1952, so the phrase a final solution has a particular um, gravity to it. But what he is saying is this, that as we live our daily lives with our daily priorities, with our tools, engaging with our immediate environment, all these things seem very different and very new. And it seems obvious, it seems completely obvious, that fascism is the exact opposite of communism, isn't it? And that um, promoting one race necessarily disadvantages another, and so on. But what Berlin is saying is that if you look at these things in a large scale, all these things are the same. They are exactly the same. Fascism is the same as communism. Because its message is, if you do what we say, we will come to a final answer, a steady state, which can be maintained. And that is totally non-evolutionary, because, because the evolutionary view is that things are always changing, and it is the greatest mistake of history, because it's impossible and what it leads to, over and over and over again, for as long as there have been people, there's plenty of evidence of this, what it leads to, a large part of the time, is genocide. Of one sort or another. So, it's time to come to a conclusion, or you won't be able to ask me any questions. And uh, the question originally was, is education natural? This is the last slide. I've put the word... I've put the question mark in brackets because the picture actually is a watershed. It's, it's not controversial. It's that's Loch Dochard, which is at the watershed between Glen Etive and um, Glencoe in the Scottish Highlands. But the watershed that I've got in mind is, is this. Um, Jared Diamond and others have suggested that we are, now in, or we are now or we are about to become in a completely new situation uh, in our relationship with the rest of non-human nature. And the reason is this. You remember that for the Easter Islanders, Easter Island was their world. There was no other. There was nowhere else for them to go. That was it. For the Greenland Norse, the same thing was true. There wasn't really any going back to Norway. They lived in two fjords in western Greenland, and that was the world. <clears throat> that was what they knew. That was what they had available to them. 
And the point is that just possibly now, with our global technologies, with the demands that we are making particularly on natural wastes, natural sinks for waste, such as particularly the atmosphere and the oceans, we have reached to the point, we've reached the point where our whole world is the whole world. And if that is so, then what these lessons from history tell us is that we really do need to be very careful and because if we don't, then the ecosystem that supports us all is perfectly capable of flipping over into a, a state which, from a human point of view, would be entirely barren, if, if that's true. So the answer to my question is this. Education is perfectly natural. It's completely natural. It is actually the thing which defines our nature. It's who we are, it's what we are. But the way that it usually works is that we use education as a way of generating variety in our societies and then some kind of selection takes place between one and another. But just possibly now we're in a situation where the selection might be between us and something else. Something that isn't us at all, like cockroaches. And if that were true, then we would need to devise a sort of education that found a way of coping with that problem and that would, might be something that didn't advocate any kind of final solution but rather what we called earlier ecological resilience, a view that knows the difference between what we know and what we merely believe or are convinced of or think the latest available evidence best supports because they're not the same thing at all. A form of education which, like the, the, the Inuit, um, is fully aware of the value of scientific inquiry and, and detailed, precise knowledge, but also understands that that all only works so far when you can't even specify the variables that you're up against. And this would be a sort of education that would be quite unnatural. And perhaps that's what we ought to do. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for listening. And as we are in the very last throes of January, I've still got time to wish you all a very happy New Year. <laughs>